episode 35 of Clarence into the Weeds, a podcast where myself and my colleague Matt Kelly take a deep dive into a compliance issue of interest. Today we take a very deep dive into a recent public company accounting oversight board semi-annual white paper involving the characteristics of emerging growth companies. These are companies that were exempted out from the requirements of Sarbanes-Oxley around certain financial uh, audits and financial statements that they had to make prior to the time that they went public. The um, paper really detailed some of the material weaknesses that were discovered with these emerging growth companies, how over half of them uh, received an explanatory paragraph in their most recent auditor statements expressing substantial doubt as to the company's ability to go forward as an ongoing concern. Matt and I talk about uh, the uh, public, or rather the going public portion of Sarbanes-Oxley, what requirements are required and how those protect or don't protect American investors. It's really a deep dive into something that I've been thinking about uh, quite a bit. Matt obviously has been as well. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and I'm back with my good friend and colleague, Matt Kelly, founder of Radical Compliance, to uh, go into the weeds in another episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. Matt, welcome. Hello, Tom. Always good to be here. This is the podcast that takes a deep dive into a particular topic or subject each week. Uh, Matt and I are well-known geeks for compliance, and we uh, really like to go into it. And today we are going to go into the PCAOB white paper, which has been recently released, that called attention to the risk of material weaknesses at emerging growth companies. So, Matt, um, you and I both have thought and written, thought a lot about and written some on emerging growth companies in a wide variety of industries. Uh, what mm-hmm. uh, were some of the things that really stood out for you in the PCAOB, and that's the Public Accounting Public Company Accounting Oversight Board annual white paper um, regarding uh, certain characteristics of emerging growth companies that stood out for you? Well, um, to surprise nobody who has followed this issue closely, and for those of you who haven't, I will delve into it momentarily, but surprising nobody, the report found that most emerging growth companies uh, don't have very good uh, internal control over financial reporting relative to other public company filers or publicly traded companies. Uh, It's not to say that emerging growth companies uh, rampantly have financial control problems, but a significantly greater percentage of them do than the public company universe as a whole. Um, So for some history here, for anybody who might not recall, in 2012, Congress passed the Jobs Act. And by the way, uh, this week of the first week of April is the fifth anniversary of the Jobs Act. Um, Yahoo! But they created this new category of public filers uh, to in- uh, ostensibly to encourage more companies to file IPOs uh, called emerging growth companies. They were companies with less than $1 billion in annual revenue. They got to, um, for example, have a confidential review of their prospective um, registration statement before they made it public, and then the SEC would look at it, help them clean up any uh, flaws or weaknesses they saw, then they would file a public registration statement. 
Emerging growth companies only need to file two audited financial years when they're going public, as opposed to the usual three before this. Uh, and they are also exempt from the internal control over financial reporting, the audit of ICFR. So that is Section 404B of the Sarbanes-Oxley Act. They still need to comply with Section 404A, which requires companies to say how confident they are in their internal control over financial reporting, but they don't have to get the outside audit as most other large publicly traded companies do. Um, so that's all the backstory. Then the PCAOB put out this report, which was very good and very detailed. Uh, essentially, it found 1,950 emerging growth filers since that category of filer was created in 2012. Of those 1,950, only about 750 or so are actual companies that you and I and the average investor would think of as real companies. They're trading on a stock exchange. They're not holding companies or anything else like that. Um, but of the 742, they are roughly twice as likely to disclose a material weakness in internal control over financial reporting. Uh, they are four times as likely to have a paragraph from their audit firm warning about the company's ability to continue as a going concern. Uh, they are not very large uh, in terms of annual revenue or assets, and um, a fair number of them reported zero revenue in their most recent annual report. So all sorts of interesting statistics like that that painted a somewhat unflattering portrait of emerging growth companies. Yeah, Tom, are you there? If you're talking, I can't hear you. Yep. So uh, okay. a couple of those uh, statistics really jumped out for me. Uh, the first one was over half um, where were uh, of the companies where the most recent audit report expressed substantial doubt about the company's ability to continue as an ongoing concern. And then separately, almost 50% at 47% reported material weaknesses. And for the investor class, or the people that the SEC is supposed to be uh, looking out for, those are those are pretty dramatic numbers. Uh, now we're talking about, you know, relatively new, relatively small companies. So I understand this is not what you would expect to see in a Fortune 500 company. Uh, nevertheless, if this is the class of companies, um, or the group of companies, I should say, that is going to go public in the next few years, um, these are these are some. Uh, pretty disheartening uh, numbers to put forward, don't you think? Well, you know, what I find, I guess, even annoying about what the SEC did with this emerging growth company class, and actually, I should step back and say what I find annoying about what Congress did, because this was thrust upon the SEC, which did not ask for the JOB Act. But um, in theory, okay, these are smaller companies, they are emerging, they're going to be a bit more risky, and so therefore you, the investor, would get a more potential upside. There is a risk and return equation that the investor gets to do. I appreciate the theory of it. Here in the real world, as the PCAOB report shows, there was a big run-up in the early years of the Jobs Act era, 2012, 13, 14, 
where um, a whole lot of emerging growth companies filed. The market cap for them as a class um, overall, compared to everybody, was still very small. But within that class, you know, the market cap went up and up and up for a few years. But that has the number of new emerging growth company filers has plateaued, and their collective market cap is declining. So I, as an investor in these companies, am not getting the return I am supposed to get for assuming the extra risk that these smaller, newer companies have. It's like, why am I doing this? Um, now, you know, in the grand scheme of things, still there are you know many, many thousands of public companies in the United States. They are emerging growth companies are a small number. Uh, most mutual funds uh, or retirement funds that you might be involved in, their exposure to these guys is going to be tiny. It's not like the investors are really suffering a lot. Um, but if you specifically target these people, you're not going to get the return you'd like. And you know they've got more problems. Like Why did we decide to do this other than to facilitate companies going public? But after that, remaining public, there's not much sense in this. There's not much upside to it. The only people who really benefited were the bankers and law firms and investment uh, consultants who help companies go public. That's that's not about investor protection. That's not about adequate capital markets. That's about doing deals. Uh, right. The, um, um, the other thing, that kind of general topic, well, I mean, you have, you've written and I've heard you talk a fair amount about uh, Dodd-Frank, access to capital, and changes that the uh, new administration might make, particularly in the context of these emerging growth companies. And what I'm seeing from this is, this report is, it's not really the access to capital uh, that may be the problem. Here, they're obviously looking at financial controls. This does not touch upon the business model of these companies or products or service that they're, services that they're delivering. And if you overlay on all of that, the fairly dramatic drop in companies that are going public. Is there anything that you can really see from this other than, uh, you know, perhaps this class of companies is just not ready to, to take the step to, to go public and really be a force uh, within the U.S. business community? Well, I think there are a couple of different distinctions that need to be called out here. First, um, you know, there's a difference between going public and remaining public, staying public. And that's critical, that the standards to exist as a public company in the United States are relatively high compared to other stock markets around the world. I do not necessarily think that is a bad thing when so much of the average investor's um, net worth in retirement funds in uh, primarily, you know, if that's tied up in a stock market with loosey-goosey financial controls for filers there, uh, you know, you can see a real risk to your retirement funds. And that's exactly what caused the Sarbanes-Oxley Act in the first place, was low standards for financial accounting led to a big market meltdown in 2002, and everybody saw their 401k shrivel up. So we panicked and did Sarbanes-Oxley. Um, but that is how companies can continue to be public on an ongoing basis. And yes, it's expensive. And yes, it is more expensive for smaller filers than larger ones. Secondly, there is the burden of going public, which a lot of uh, conservatives in Washington think is the real problem. I'm not sure that it is. I think it's relatively easy to go public. The problem is more going to be staying public time after time, uh, year after year, quarter after quarter. But you know, when you get down to the nub of it, it's 
are these standards preventing companies from going public at all? And the strong evidence is it's not so much that they're not going public because they can't, it's that they're staying private because they can. If we're talking about access to capital, capital is all over the place. We've got private equity and uh, hedge funds and uh, venture capital funds are awash in cash. They are more than happy to shower private enterprises with capital to keep on expanding. Look at how much money Uber has received or Airbnb or any other number of businesses out there where the need to go public is not really, you know, it's not there. And you get all this other upside that you don't have to deal with the somewhat nettlesome challenges of staying public and internal control over financial reporting. All that goes away. And, uh, you know, if the private company then gets sold to another private equity investor, uh, all of those founders who are looking for their big cash out, they actually get cash as opposed to stock, which is typically what their cash out would be after an IPO. There's a big compelling reason. like Why bother going with an IPO at all? The conditions are very conducive to not going public. And that's not going to change no matter what the Jobs Act or the Financial Choice Act 2.0 or other legislation is doing. They're pushing on the string, and that's not really getting much done. Uh, you know, you've you've uh, said something that it really struck me as something I've been thinking about a lot, although I haven't quite gotten uh, my thoughts together to write about it, which is the uh, private equity market. Is it moving towards a model that should have, if not um, regulatory oversight from the SEC, is it something different than uh, what um, you and I, uh, or a, a private market has traditionally been considered? So, for instance, when you have uh, multiple tiers and, and uh, uh, A level, B level, C level, D level of funding, and you have uh, subsequent investors buying out prior investors uh, for that big cash out that you did, um, articulated. Is that something that we need to move forward so that there is some regulations around that in terms of financial reporting and financial controls so that uh, investors can can really see uh, what they're getting into? Or uh, do you really advocate keeping the fairly clear demarcation between public and private uh, at this point? Well, that is a that's a really good question, actually, because I do believe one area where the SEC will move on is making it easier for more potential investors to tap into these private offerings. Um, you know, for example, this happened to Facebook uh, that eventually there were more than 500 shareholders of Facebook while it was private because employees would get options. And once you cross the 500 shareholder threshold, you need to start making more disclosures. Um, the SEC, uh, for example, Chairman, Acting Chairman Michael Piwowar, and I strongly suspect the chairman to be, Jay Clayton, would say that let's raise that threshold from 500 to 2,000 to maybe 3,000. Uh, and if you are a larger private company, it's very easy for you to have 3,000 employees or you know several thousand at least. So you know you might raise that ability, that threshold to let more people get into these deals. Um, Michael Piwowar at the SEC is also a big proponent of revisiting the idea of an accredited investor. Basically, that is a fancy terminology for people with a lot of uh, net worth who therefore can get into hedge fund deals that mere mortals like me, who do not have that net worth, we can't. Um, could we erase that distinction? Could we change it? 
Could we let investors get more access to these private offerings? Now, there's a lot of interest in that. And I think we'll see the Republican-leaning SEC do something. But what does that mean for investor protections? Um, you know, we'd be focusing on one part of the SEC's mission of facilitating access to capital. Good. But how do you protect investors in this world when a lot of these newer investors might not be familiar with the contours of it? I don't have a good question, a good answer to that yet. But that's that's where we're going to see a lot of discussion, I think, when the SEC starts looking at this. And I bet my house that they will start looking at this later this year. And I guess the other thing that struck me with uh, certainly uh, Uber, for instance, or, or I shouldn't pick on Uber, a large uh, or some tech companies will have a super class of stock that the uh, mm-hmm. owners or uh, founders or initial investors will have 10 times voting power of uh, others who uh, buy stock when it goes public. And I just I see an inherent inequity in that. Uh, but it starts at the uh, when the company is private, and it just gets carried over to the public sphere. Uh, Theranos, in their latest uh, offerings uh, to uh, try to raise money to get them uh, back perhaps where they were, uh, have uh, put in a clause that uh, says investors will not sue the company. So there's some fairly onerous terms that are going into these um, investments. And even if people like you and I had the opportunity to uh, get involved in some of these private placements, uh, the protections for those, the class of investors that we would be in, um, and perhaps others, is far, far less than you get uh, from a U.S. public company. That is very true. And you know, how would somebody like Jay Clayton, um, how would he propose to assure investor protection as we are loosening the standards for people to get more people? to get to the very lucrative private offerings that do happen out there. Um, I don't know what the answer to that question would be. I do think what's interesting is when Jay Clayton had his Senate confirmation hearing a week or two ago, he talked a lot about how he wants companies to go public at an earlier phase in their life cycle so that when they do hit that surge in growth, they'll be publicly traded and investors can ride that surge up. Now, that sounds like a nice idea, but it does already happen in the private market where, you know, you'll see someone like Uber and I, I will pick on Uber because they're a great example. Uh, you know, when Uber several years ago had this monstrous round of fundraising that in an earlier generation, that would have been an IPO where they raised uh, two tons of capital on the public markets. They just raised two tons of capital on the private markets. Right. Um, when you have the very anti-regulatory Donald Trump and his somewhat more nuanced uh, nominees like Jay Clayton, who I think is a very intelligent guy, you know, Clayton is going to probably try to push both directions at once. Looser standards for private offerings, more people can get involved, but looser IPO standards so companies could decide this a big monster round through an IPO rather than an actual monster round on the private markets. Um, there's a whole lot of investor protection questions I we haven't answered yet. And when you and I talk about investor protection for the compliance officers listening, that's actually disclosure standards you will have to meet. Um, what's that really going to look like? We don't know. But that's I think that we're going to see a lot more conversation about that whenever Jay Clayton gets confirmed, which I think will be early May. 
And then for the next 12 months after that, there'll be something along those lines. It'll be an interesting conversation. So let me throw out another idea I've been mulling over, which is that going public actually increases the business efficiency of the company because it requires more and greater discipline than you would have without um, U.S. uh, securities law oversight. So, for instance, in the discussion around Uber, there's a fair amount of dialogue around um, if the company went public, it would have to meet uh, both the uh, regulatory standards, the internal control standards, and the reporting and disclosure standards that you just talked about. So by moving, uh, if Jay Clayton uh, does get his wish and moves companies uh, to go public earlier, that might be one way to bring greater discipline, which would bring greater financial controls, which in my mind would make a company more efficient, not less efficient. Any thoughts on that? I, I might tinker with the um, the terminology you use about being more disciplined. I think that uh, you know, it, certainly anybody who has been acquired by a private equity firm, they would be the first to say, you want discipline? You see what these founders <laughs> do when they take over my business. Um, you know, and that's very true. It's There are different types of discipline that are afoot here. Um, you know, I think that a lot of private companies, you know, frankly, their financial discipline is probably very good in one sense, but more about disclosure and behaviors. Um, it'll be more systematized, but, you know, I, I don't necessarily know. I think you're changing one type of discipline for another, uh, and there will always be critics on either side. Um, you know, there are plenty of people who will say that if you're a private billion dollar company, two billion in revenue, could you go public? Sure. But there are people who specifically have said, we decided not to go public because we knew we couldn't adhere to those standards. We just sold ourselves to private equity, and then we all took a nice vacation. Um, you know, That's not a wrong answer. There's no right or wrong answer here. But I can see why the intimidating public company regime in this country, you know, yeah, it does scare away some companies that they've you know, they've grown by private equity merger deals, and there's four different operating units on nine different financial systems. You're going to have to straighten all of that out with your financial controls. Should you as a business? Yes, you should. Do you need to if you're owned by private equity and you're just making your numbers? No, you don't. Um, but if you go into an IPO world, yes, you do. And it's more expensive generally because the board of directors is more expensive and more compliance personnel and functions and software. So I'm not saying that we've got a great public company regime here. Sure, there are ways that we could try to simplify it. It's just some of what Congress proposes, such as the emerging growth companies distinction that we currently have. Now, it's kind of a solution in search of a problem. forward to uh, continuing this conversation. This has just been a fascinating discussion for me uh, into the weeds, and I think it's something that uh, we're going to get to follow, certainly uh, in the uh, first couple of years of the Trump administration. We shall see. Yeah. Thank you very much, Tom. It's always happy to talk to you. Thanks, Matt. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds with myself and Matt Kelly. I have two requests for you. The first one is if you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, if you would rate our podcast as it would help 
uh, our rankings and also help us to spread the word about this most deep dive into the weeds podcast around compliance. The second thing is Matt and I would love to hear from you. If you'd like to have some questions answered in an upcoming mailbag episode, please shoot them to me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Matt can be reached at mkelly at radicalcompliance.com. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds, and I hope you'll join me next week for our next episode. Thank you again. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.